0: Hello, I am a robot. You are listening to an Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome to the 15th episode of an Echo of Glory a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. By the summer of 1985, questions were starting to be asked over whether professional football in England was viable in the condition in which it had found itself the Bradford fire had demonstrated that a considerable number of stadiums were little more than death traps, while the death of a young supporter at St Andrews on the same day and the Heysel Stadium disaster 18 days later felt like a grimly inevitable denouement to a hooligan problem that had been growing out of control for the previous two decades. This is a story of England and Wales's reaction to its lowest ebb. This is the story of football here, from 1985 to 1989. of May 1985 killed 96 people, gave English football pariah status around the world and broadly tipped the game in this country from recession into depression. From a record high in 1948, attendances have been falling steadily ever since and even though the top division had been immune to some of this, the lower divisions had already seen an alarming slump with crowds falling by 50% over the course of a decade from the mids of the 1970s on. Three factors were cited for this decline. Hooliganism, a deterioration in the quality of facilities and a decline in the quality of the actual football being played. It is little surprise that the season after all of this proved to be the point at which they bottomed out across the board. Attendances in the first division of the Football League fell by 7.2% during the 1985-86 season, dropping below an average of 20,000 for the first time. The highest percentage drops came in North London, where Arsenal's average crowd fell by 23.7% to an average of 23,824, whilst Tottenham Hotspurs fell by 27.2% to just 20,859. Nine clubs recorded an average attendance of less than 15,000, and this included such luminaries as Ipswich Town, Southampton and West Bromwich Albion, all of whom had played European football earlier in the decade. Just seven out of the division's 22 clubs reported increased attendances on the year before and these were mostly modest improvements. And all of this came, of course, at a time when pay on the gate was still commonplace, and entry prices were affordable for most. Liverpool ended the 1985-86 season by becoming the winners of the double of the FA Cup and Football League Championship, only the third team to do so this century. But even their average home attendance was stagnant at 35,271. 10,000 short of anfield's capacity of the time <laughs> the story was no better across the rest of the Football League. Crowds in the 2nd Division fell by almost 12%, with the biggest of all coming at Blackburn Rovers, whose average attendance of 5,826 was a drop of almost 40% on the previous season. The largest percentage increase and decrease in the entire Football League both came in the 3rd Division, where Champions Reading saw an increase of 89%, but free-falling Wolverhampton Wanderers who were suffering their third successive relegation saw their average attendance drop by 52% to just 4,020. The only division to record an increase in attendances over the course of this season was the fourth division, where they rose on the previous season by 1.2%. Despite this though, Four clubs recorded at least one attendance of less than a 1,000 for at least one match. Torquay United recorded the lowest average of all, an attendance of just 1,240. In a desperate attempt to mitigate the effects of lost revenue from the European ban and these plummeting attendances, substitute competitions were hurriedly set up in order to fill up the schedules. The biggest clubs set up the Sports Super Cup, sponsored by a cable television company who also took the rights to show the final live. It was pretty much an unmitigated disaster. The six clubs that would have qualified for Europe Liverpool, Everton, Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United, Southampton and League Cup winners Norwich City were arranged into two groups of three with the top two in each group getting through to the semi-finals. The final pretty much inevitably, ended up being played over two legs between Liverpool and Everton, with Liverpool winning by seven goals to two on aggregate. But only 26,068 people turned out for the second leg of the final at Goodison Park, and the tournament was scrapped after just one season. Howard Kendall later recalled that prior to his Everton side's group match at Norwich City, he sent his team out with a team talk that consisted of him saying... What a waste of time this is. Out you go.
2: McMahon, Liverpool are finding a lot of room in midfield and that's a marvellous run from John Walk found by McMahon. Rush is there, Rush has scored and that could well mean the Screensport Super Cup for Liverpool. That was a mowing challenge that fortunately didn't make contact from Ratcliffe but it's left Rush in the clear against Bobby Mims. Ian Rush... Has scored again. He's making this competition his own benefit. Mulvey for Rush, it's a brilliant pass. It's a hat trick that will live long in the memory.
1: The other two competitions turned out to be a little longer lasting than the Super Cup. The Full Members' Cup was set up for the rest of the First Division and the Second Division, and received something of a boost at the end of its first season when Chelsea beat Manchester City by five goals to four in the first final played at Wembley. The following year, Blackburn Rovers caused something of a surprise from the second division when they beat Charlton Athletic to lift the trophy. The full Members' Cup lived on until the formation of the Premier League in 1992, with Chelsea and Nottingham Forest winning it twice each, although even after the abolition of the Super Cup, Four of the biggest clubs, Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur, refused to take part in it. The competition for lower division clubs, meanwhile, remains with us to this day. Originally set up as the Associate Members' Cup, it continues even now as the EFL Trophy, although this competition has been severely discredited in recent years by the decision to allow Premier League under-21 teams to compete in it. These new competitions, however, were little more than sticking plasters for a game that seemed to be teetering on the brink of a full meltdown. Wolverhampton Wanderers had been one of the founding members of the Football League in 1888, but by the start of the 1980s, they were facing a mountainous debt as a result of the construction of a vast new stand at Molyneux. As the club plummeted down through the divisions, It ended up in the hands of two brothers from Saudi Arabia, Mahmoud and Mohammed Bharti, from a company called Allied Properties. The club had been hours from extinction in 1982 when the takeover that left the Bharti brothers pulling the strings at the club went through. But when the local council refused planning permission to redevelop the site of the stadium, it became increasingly clear to the fans that the brothers were bankrupt wolves if it boosted their chances of redeveloping this prime town centre piece of real estate. In July 1986, with the club once again facing extinction after having suffered a third successive relegation, and with two sides of Molyneux closed as a result of safety inspections following the Bradford fire, a last-ditch proposal hauled the club back from the edge again. It was agreed that Wolverhampton Council would purchase Molyneux, along with the land around the stadium, while a local property developer would pay off the club's debts if planning permission was granted for a nearby Asda Superstore to be built. A deal was struck and Wolves had been saved. The most visible representation of the decay of so many English clubs, though, came on Teesside. Middlesbrough had fallen into decline after relegation from the First Division in 1982, and by the spring of 1986 they were falling towards the Third Division. In April 1986 the club had to borrow £30,000 from the Professional Footballers Association to pay players' wages, but a month later, with debts amounting to almost £2 million, they had to call in the provisional liquidator. In late July, the inland revenue took the club to court. They owed £115,156 in tax, and the judge issued a winding up order. On the 2nd of August, manager Bruce Rioch and 29 other non-playing staff were sacked, and the gates to Ayrson Park were padlocked. The club was eventually rescued by a new consortium involving Steve Gibson, who remains the club's owner to this day. Middlesbrough had to play the opening match of the 1986-87 season at Hartlepool United and photographs of Ayrson Park with padlocks on the gates became a powerful visual metaphor not only for the plight of this one particular club but also for the general state of the game in this country at the time.
3: Okay I think uh, the statement we'd like to make is that following further communications with the Football League The consortium is satisfied that the Football League's conditions can be met in full and are proceeding to conclude arrangements.
0: The announcement was greeted with stunned silence from the battle-weary media who'd followed every twist and turn in Borough's fortunes over the last three months. But even in their hour of triumph, the consortium, who've been so reluctant to talk in the past, found it difficult to speak freely and openly. They had to admit they'd done it by the skin of their teeth.
3: If you'd asked me last night, I would have said the chances of Middlesbrough
0: surviving were almost nil. And that was the real situation. The consortium have given in to all the Football League's demands for takeover deals, including the toughest, which is to pay all creditors in full. The borough owed £2 million, and the league also insisted on the consortium putting up an extra £350,000 to work with. It's understood the league had told the consortium privately that they had until noon today to come up with an acceptable package, or they'd sanction transfer deals for the players. At least one was to have had talks with a new club tomorrow. But the news has come as a relief to manager Bruce Rioch, who was praised by the consortium for keeping the squad together. It's been a traumatic week for everyone at the club.
2: Obviously we've had to cope with professional footballers and we've had to do it the professional way. Obviously the last week has been an absolute nightmare. Uh, Not just for myself, but for the players.
1: Following the riot, before, during and after the match between his club and Millwall in March 1985, the Luton Town chairman and Conservative MP for Wellin Hatfield, David Evans, imposed a ban on all away supporters from Kenilworth Road from the start of the 1986-87 season. A club membership scheme was also introduced. Luton Town supporters' personal details were taken by the club, and all fans would be required to carry their membership cards to be admitted to matches. The Football Hooliganism War Cabinet, set up following the incident by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Government, attempted to have such schemes adopted by clubs nationwide without success, whilst attempts to make such a scheme mandatory for all clubs were similarly unsuccessful. The first match played at Kenilworth Road under the Identity Card Scheme was a First Division match against Southampton on the 26 August 1986. The Football League insisted that Luton relax the ban for League Cup matches, but when Evans refused to allow Cardiff City fans to visit Kenilworth Road for their second round tie, the club was expelled from the competition for that season. The Football Association announced that Luton would be allowed to maintain their ban on visiting supporters in the FA Cup, but also that they would allow other clubs to ban away support from Luton. In response to this, Luton eased the ban slightly. 500 tickets would be given to certain clubs, with this number doubling should the match pass without incident. The suspension of away support continued for four seasons, and from a policing standpoint it was a success. During its enforcement, not one arrest was made either inside or outside the ground. Despite this, and despite the support of Bedfordshire Police for the scheme, Luton Town repealed the ban before the start of the 1990-91 season. With a plastic pitch also installed, and one side of the ground demolished to be completely replaced by executive boxes alone, Luton Town did, over the course of the seasons during which the membership scheme was in place, become something of a pariah club amongst the supporters of other clubs.
3: At 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, Kenilworth Road, home of Luton Town FC, is no place for a pessimist. If there is one currency which abounds in a football stadium, it is optimism. Optimism that the team will win. Optimism that they will make it to the top of the table. Underlying it all, optimism that the club will survive the crisis which is squeezing the league as never before. Since the war, costs have soared, gates have declined by half and, overshadowing almost everything else, the image of football has been shattered by violence, a problem which nine months ago made Luton the focus of attention. This was an isolated incident, but it's forced the club to commit itself to a radical new crowd policy. Next season, only home supporters will be admitted to the ground. One question to which football still has to find a satisfactory answer is, does the image of violence have an impact on the gate? Speaking personally, my own enthusiasm died the day I stood in the away supporters' end at Southampton and was spat upon by the home crowd. Surprisingly, you may think, in surveys of former football supporters, only 7% give us their reason for staying away, the fact of crowd trouble. Well, whatever the causes of football's present unpopularity, Luton here seemed to be bucking the trend, because while gates... In general, this season have gone down by 10%. The crowd at Kenilworth Road has had an increase, albeit a small one of about
1: 2%. Although 4th Division attendances had held up pretty well throughout the 1985-86 season, the cost of required stadium renovations, coupled with the fact that attendances were still low, with nine clubs having an average attendance of under 2,000 that season... ...meant that the bottom of the division was starting to look a little stagnant by the summer of 1986. Seven years after its formation, the Alliance Premier League achieved its goal. The Football League would allow automatic promotion and relegation from the end of the 1986-87 season. Just the one place, but it was a start. And at the end of the first season... With the APL having renamed itself as the GM Vauxhall Conference, Scarborough were the surprise winners. The race to avoid the drop at the bottom of the 4th division, however, was where the tension was. Football League founder members Burnley, who'd slid down the Football League over the previous decade, drew a crowd of over 16,000 to Turf Moor to see them get the win they needed against Orient on the last day of the season. And after the match between Torquay United and Crew Alexandra was held up after a Torquay player was bitten by a police dog, an injury time Torquay goal sent Lincoln City down instead. They bounced straight back as champions the following season. Also in the summer of 1986, the Football League decided to reintroduce playoffs, for the first time since the start of the 20th century. During the first two stagings of them, in 1987 and 1988, the four teams involved were the three clubs that finished directly below the automatic promotion places, plus the club that finished directly above the automatic relegation places in the division above, similar to the Football League test matches of the 1890s. This was part of the league's two-season-long restructuring, that would reduce the number of teams in the top tier from 22 to 20, while increasing them in the lower divisions, to create the now familiar structure of three divisions of 24 clubs below the top flight. During these seasons, only one club, Charlton Athletic in 1987, entered the playoffs in a relegation place and managed to win them and therefore avoid the drop. In the seasons prior to the 1990 playoffs, the finals were played over two legs, with both teams hosting the other. If the two teams could not be separated after two matches, a replay was played at a neutral venue. Since 1990, though, the finals have been played at Wembley Stadium and during its rebuilding at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Neutral venues were required for replays on three occasions. The 1987 Second Division Playoff Final between Charlton Athletic and Leeds United went to a replay which was played at St Andrews. The 1987 Third Division Final was played at Selhurst Park, and in 1988, the First Division Final replay was played at Walsall's Fellows Park, although this was not a neutral venue, since Walsall was one of the clubs involved. Like automatic promotion and relegation between the league and the conference, the playoffs have proved to be a hugely successful innovation.
3: Walsh runs over it. It's now
2: left for Peak. Oh, it's a good one! Oh, it's the goal, which might well have preserved First Division football for Charlton Athletic. And it's Peter Shirtcliffe again. The Charlton supporters delirious. And it's a Sheffield man who's probably kept Leeds in Division Two for next season. What a dream story for Peter Shirtliff. He doesn't get many goals, but he's got two in the space of a few moments, which have turned the match on its head. When Leeds looked to be on their way to the First Division, Shirtliff equalised, and now he's headed them surely into the First Division again next season.
1: Following their failure to qualify for Euro 84, the England national team slowly started to improve under Bobby Robson over the next couple of years, sailing through their qualification group for the 1986 World Cup unbeaten in eight matches, with four wins and four draws. Their group draw for the finals looked winnable too, set against a fading Poland team, Portugal and Morocco. In amongst the controversy that would follow later in the tournament, the mediocrity of England's start to the 1986 World Cup Finals is often overlooked. They kicked off with a 1-0 defeat against Portugal and it looked as though they were heading out of the competition altogether when they could only muster a goalless draw against Morocco in their second match which was most notable for midfielder Ray Wilkins losing his temper, throwing the ball at the referee and getting himself sent off. From out of nowhere though, Gary Lineker jump-started the team. A first-half hat-trick against Poland saw them through to the second round and a further two goals from him against Paraguay set up a quarter-final match against Argentina. A lot of energy has been expended on explaining that match, the moral and philosophical aspects of Diego Maradona's hand of God and of the sheer brilliance of his second goal. From an English perspective, there was much to be taken from it all. They pushed the eventual champions as hard as anyone else did bar West Germany in the entire tournament and came desperately close to forcing extra time despite having fallen two goals behind earlier in the second half. Whilst it is proper that there should be some feeling of injustice about the handled goal, the responsibility for that falls as much with the match officials for either not noticing it or ignoring it or in no small part with the England goalkeeper Peter Shilton, for allowing himself to be outjumped by a player six inches shorter than him. And no one, surely, could ever deny the sheer brilliance of Maradona's second goal that day. The other point
3: uh, I could offer is that uh, if there is a slight weakness in the England captain's goalkeeping skills, it is that he's not maybe as quick off his line as other goalkeepers I tend to do and uh, that ball was
2: played through to him but here's Maradona again he has Borchaga to his left and Valdana to his left he doesn't he won't need any of them oh you have to say that's magnificent there is no debate about that goal
0: that was just pure football genius and the crowd in the Azteca stadium stand to him inside one away from another And the is under pressure to play the ball home with the side of his foot. If the first was illegal, the second was one of the best goals we've seen in this championship.
1: Two years later, England went into the European Championships in West Germany feeling confident. For the second tournament in a row, they qualified at a canter. Dropping just one point from a qualifying group that also contained Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland and Turkey. Their presence in the final, however, was pretty much an unmitigated disaster. Crowd trouble in both Dusseldorf and Stuttgart put an end to any hopes of the ban on English club sides being admitted to European competition. Whilst on the pitch, they were edged out by Ireland, beaten narrowly by the Netherlands and then completely outplayed by the Soviet Union. Gary Lineker, the striker who'd become the team's talisman, was sluggish to the point of inert. It was later established that he had Hepatitis B. The press savaged Bobby Robson over England's disappointing performances and Robson offered his resignation. But the FA refused to accept it and Robson would stay in charge for England's 1990 qualification campaign. Wales' qualification attempts for the 1986 World Cup finals ended in disappointment that was overshadowed by tragedy. Their final group match against Scotland in Cardiff saw both teams chasing a playoff spot for a place in the finals. Wales needed a win, while Scotland needed a draw. An early goal from Mark Hughes gave Wales the lead, but with 10 minutes to play, a Davy Cooper penalty rescued a draw for Scotland and sent them through to a playoff match against Australia. Anything that happened on the pitch, however, was overshadowed by events on the sidelines. At the end of the match, television cameras caught the Scotland manager, Jock Steen, clearly distressed, being carried up the Ninian Park Tunnel by staff. He died minutes later, having suffered a heart attack. He was 62 years old.
2: Many of us cried tonight. After we, have, after we heard the news of uh, the main man. We were all going to celebrate tonight and there's none of us. We're just waiting on bus now. We were supposed to go down to town a couple of hours celebrate. I'm quite sure that every fan
1: standing here tonight, night would have wished Scotland to get put out the World cup and Mr. Stephen still with us. How will you look forward now to your prospects for Mexico in the wake of Jockstein's death? Well, I think death? the
2: prospects for Mexico are, uh, are a bit disappointing now because Jocksteen won't be there, won't he? No, I mean, the whole team... And all the fans more determined to get to Mexico. God job, Steve. He's a legend in his own time. He's, he'll remain a legend in Scottish
1: football. One of the problems with consistently having these near misses in qualification is that your country comes to find itself stuck in a vicious circle, never being placed as one of the top seeds and therefore always having an uphill battle to qualify and having a chance of breaking that loop. In qualifying for Euro 88, Wales were in a group of four with Denmark, Czechoslovakia and Finland. They started with a disappointing 1-1 draw in Finland but battled back with wins against Finland in the return home match and more impressively than anything else, a 1-0 home win against Denmark. The Denmark win gave Wales something extremely precious. With two games to play, They were in control of their own destiny again. But disappointment followed yet again. Their final two matches were difficult ones, away against Denmark and Czechoslovakia. But wins from both or either of them would have put them top of the group and sent them to West Germany. And the Welsh team of the 1980s did contain probably the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, in the form of Everton's Neville Southall, although he didn't play in their penultimate match, even with such talented players dotted around their team, Wales ended up missing out yet again. They lost by a goal to nil in Copenhagen and then two goals to nil in Prague. Qualification would have to wait yet again.
3: Morton Olsen. Pear Freeman. No offside against the substitute Fleming Polsen. Could be danger.
2: It's not cleared and it's in by Elkiar. What a disaster for Wales. 5 minutes into the second half and really without looking dangerous
3: up front Denmark have taken the lead and it's all fallen apart a little bit for Wales the 45,000 crowd here at the Idritz Park going absolutely berserk with excitement Fleming Poulsen getting the ball across Almost cleared, not quite, and it was not good enough because Elkiar was right where it mattered to score his 38th goal for his country.
1: Liverpool and Everton dominated 1980s English football in a way that no English city had done before. Liverpool won the first division title in 1982, 1983 and 1984. Everton won it in 1985. Liverpool won the double in 1986, and Everton won the league in 1987. On top of this, Everton won the FA Cup in 1984, while Liverpool won the European Cup in 1981 and 1984, while Everton won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1985. Perhaps the finest team of the decade, though, was the Liverpool team of 1988. Kenny Dalglish's team won the First Division title by nine points from Manchester United that season, staying unbeaten for 29 games before losing to Everton in March. They still had a 14-point lead and two games in hand over nearest rivals Manchester United by this point, though. A defeat away at Nottingham Forest two games later turned out to be their last of the season. They ended the season on 90 points from 40 games, but it was the style of their football that really caught the eye, with a 5 0 win against Nottingham Forest in particular catching the eye as one of the finest team performances of the decade. The match was played on the 13th of April, just over a week after they'd thrown away a two goal lead to draw 3 all with Manchester United in a match that was widely considered to be United's last chance to close the gap on Liverpool. They won the league at a canter, but it would turn out to be the only trophy that they won that season. After a period during which the biggest clubs had dominated the FA Cup, there were two surprise results in the FA Cup final, which both came from matches which have come to live long in the memory. The 1987 FA Cup final was Coventry City's first appearance in an FA Cup final. But their opposition in the final looked daunting. Tottenham Hotspur had finished in third place in the first division, and their top scorer that season, Clive Allen, scored 49 goals in all competitions. Against all odds, though, Coventry City won the match. After a game described by BBC commentator John Motson, As the finest cup final I've had the pleasure of commentating on, Coventry won by three goals to two. Spurs took the lead twice in normal time, but were pegged back both times. The second time by a flying diving header from Keith Houchen, which is fondly remembered now as one of the great FA Cup final goals. An own goal from Gary Mabbott five minutes into extra time won the game for Coventry but the European ban meant that they never got the opportunity to test their mettle in the European Cup Winners' Cup. The following year came an even greater surprise. Liverpool had sauntered their way to the FA Cup final very much as they'd sauntered their way to the First Division Championship, but their opponents at Wembley were one of the surprise stories of the decade. In 1977, Southern League Club Wimbledon became the penultimate team to be voted into the Football League when they replaced Workington. For their first few seasons as a league club, they bounced between the bottom two divisions. But upward momentum soon started to build behind them, and in 1986 they were promoted into the First Division, despite the fact that their plough-laying ground still had many of the trappings from when they were a non-league club. Nicknamed the Crazy Gang, on account of their strong team spirit and penchant for practical jokes, the Dons were not expected to last very long in the 1st Division, but they thrived at the higher level and ended the 1987-88 season in 7th place in the table. For all of this, though, few believed that they would be able to beat the multitude of talents and breadth of experience of Kenny Dalglish's Liverpool team. On the day, though, Liverpool couldn't find a way through the Wimbledon defence. Laurie Sanchez scored the only goal of the match with eight minutes to play of the first half and in the second half, captain Dave Bessant became the first goalkeeper to save a penalty kick in an FA Cup final when he pushed away John Aldridge's shot after a foul was somewhat dubiously awarded against Clive Goodyear. By full time, as commented on by John Motson, the Crazy Gang had beaten the Culture Club, and Bessant became the first goalkeeper since Major William Merriman of the Royal Engineers in 1875 to lift the trophy. Wimbledon would go on to stay in the top flight until the new century. And shot
2: just <laughs> Sanchez caught young and fashionable in there. Sanchez was in there and that's a goal for Wimbledon Laurie Sanchez well what a typical Wimbledon goal Dennis Wise delivers the free kick Laurie Sanchez sneaks in and glances it into the far corner good year on Aldridge Wimbledon protest the decision Goodyear thinks he played the ball and here we have high drama because Aldridge who I think might have been replaced a moment later is the penalty taker and never has a penalty been missed in the FA Cup final at Wembley well that's what it was given for more of that in a moment Dave Besant in the week told me that he's been watching where Aldridge puts his kicks Aldridge in fact was the player fouled himself by Goodyear looked a bit harsh to me Jimmy had in a moment on that Bessant thinks or thought the kick might go to his left or the right as we look if Aldridge decides to go the same way as in the semi-final. He did and he saved it and made history. The first time ever that a penalty kick has not been converted in the FA Cup final here and Besson did guess right, his homework paid off.
1: By the time that this match was played, there was already a feeling that top-flight football in England was about to significantly change. Negotiations for the new television contracts began at the end of 1987, and the broadcasting landscape was already changing in ways that would have long-term ramifications for the entire structure of the game in this country. For one thing, satellite television was launching in the UK, and BSB The satellite television broadcasters were very keen on getting involved. So keen, in fact, that they made an offer of £200 million for 10 years' worth of pay-per-view matches on their channel. Elsewhere, the collective bargaining days of the major terrestrial broadcasters of the day was also coming to an end. ITV announced that they would be going their own way, bidding for exclusive rights without going into partnership as they had in the past with the BBC. The BSB bid came to nothing. The biggest clubs were interested, but satellite television was still in its earliest stages, and other clubs were concerned that matches being taken away to be shown on a channel which, research seemed to indicate, might take five years to reach a million households. Sponsors, it was reckoned, would not be happy. The days of televised football being shared between broadcasters, however, was coming to an end. ITV won exclusive rights for live televised matches, with a four-year contract worth £44 million. And the BBC had to satisfy themselves with an exclusive deal for the FA Cup, which meant that, for the first time in almost a quarter of a century, Match of the Day would be reduced to just a few shows per season. The so-called Big Five clubs, Liverpool, Everton, Manchester United, Spurs and Arsenal had almost broken away to form what was then described as a Super League over it all. But this had been allayed for now. However, the wheels had now been set in motion for the biggest shake-up that the game in this country had seen since the formation of the Football League in 1888, though the final split was still four years away. As the end of the decade came into view then, the building blocks for the football of the 1990s were already being put into place. 1989, however, would bring with it a chilling sting in the tail for all football supporters. English football's worst ever disaster was just around the corner.